0: This is the Beyond Reasonable Doubt podcast from MailPlus, and I'm Stephen Wright, the Daily Mail's senior crime writer. This week I'm chatting with former Metropolitan Police DCI Colin Sutton on how he and his team arrested Delroy Grant, the so called night stalker, burglar, and sex attacker who terrorised elderly people in South London for nearly two decades. Grant is suspected of committing more than 100 offences from 1990 to 2009, gaining entry to people's homes, terrorising in some cases raping his victims before leaving with small amounts of cash and jewellery. The hunt for the Night Stalker, codenamed Operation Minstead, was enormous and the case has been turned into a primetime ITV drama martin clunes playing the role of colin you know
1: we were telling colin's
0: story who's the policeman who solved
1: them who, who caught it so i would hope what people will see that sitting alongside the police drums that we all love a representation of how a
0: real crime was really solved so colin who was delroy grant and how did he target his victims
1: all the victims were aged between Late 50s and early 90s, I think it was 58 to 93 or 94 was the spread of the age of the victims. Predominantly, they were female, although there were some men. Predominantly, they lived alone, although there were one or two where there was somebody else living in the, in the house. And there were hundreds, and we don't know how many, at least 200, but possibly 300, possibly even 500 offences of burglary. And then in many of those offences of burglary, there would be an assault, almost all of them. Some of those were indecent assaults or sexual assaults. And then in a the very few, there was actually a rape. But each offence contained the same thing, which was the breaking into an elderly person's house at night while they were sleeping in their bed, normally alone. And it was then from that position, and it was a position of, Well, we don't know. We don't know what his motivation was. It certainly wasn't really financial gain because he didn't steal large amounts of money. I mean, there was one occasion he just happened upon a sort of nest egg of £3,000 in cash that he took. But generally, he'd be satisfied with, you know, 20 quid in cash and a few bits of jewellery. That's what he was stealing. I'm pretty sure that for him, it was much more about the thrill of doing it and about the control. People who burgle and burgle houses at night while the occupiers are there, the first thing they do generally when they break in is to secure their exit route. They'll unbolt the back door and and unlock it so they know that if they get disturbed, they can run out of the house quickly. He was the exact opposite. He deliberately woke the occupiers up and talked to them and interacted with them. And you've got this sort of chilling business of the fact that he would he would cut off their electricity or remove their light bulbs and he'd disconnect their phone or hide the phone handset so they couldn't get to it and then he would wake them up by normally by straddling across them and shining a bright light in their face and that's how they were woken up and they've got this figure looming over them holding them down
0: people who target elderly people for sexual purposes particularly rare category of sex offender aren't they I think they had their own, they had their own category, but it's yeah.
1: very rare indeed. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely right. You know, it, it's certainly there will be very few of us, very few police officers, even those of us who've you know served for a long time, served for a long time as detectives, who have come across somebody with this gerontophile uh, predilection, I suppose.
0: I mean, me, the crime journalist, you, the the ex sort of senior detective, mm. it's it's almost. Too disgusting to discuss, but it's also it also you feel like professionally you need to understand what's going on, what 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 makes a person like this. It, it's horrid, isn't it?
1: Yeah, oh, it, it is. There's no doubt. You know, that, that of all the things I came across in in 30 years, the time that my my kind of professional armour was pierced was doing this case because you just sat there with you know a 93 year old lady who who was confiding in you with. Great courage and great dignity as to what this man had just done to her. And because it's just something that no sort of reasonable, sane, rational person can understand, it drives you to an anger. And I never, you know, very, very rarely did I get angry about the people with whom I was dealing, but I certainly got angry about him.
0: The Night Stalker's hunting ground was South London and sort of like Surrey suburbia, wasn't it? That was his main hunting ground. And at the time that you got involved, what was
1: known yeah i mean essentially he was a black man probably had a a, a local sort of south london accent he was at any size between five foot seven and six foot two he would break in in the same way or mostly the same way which was by removing a whole pane of glass from the outside and climbing in through it he would then wake wake the victim up having first disconnected their phone tried to stop them using lights by taking light bulbs out or, or switching off the whole electricity for the house. And he would talk to them, and he would talk to them at some length. He'd ask them for money. He Sometimes there was a sort of sexualized conversation that went on, and then sometimes that led to indecent assault or, or even sometimes to rape. And then he would disappear, and he would never leave a fingerprint. But had left his DNA on a number of occasions, and that DNA had been logged, but there was nobody on the other end of it. There was you know, no, no name associated with that mm-hmm. DNA profile on the database. And so the lines of inquiry were very much, or the, the main method of trying to solve it was was kind of twofold. One was a, an investigation at the scene, at each offense, and at the time that was a pretty comprehensive sort of investigation along the lines that you would see for a homicide inquiry. And, and that meant, you know, a full scientific forensic search and recovery from the house, house-to-house inquiries with all the neighbours, CCTV trolls, the whole sort of works that the murder team does when a murder breaks, which was fine, except that these officers that were doing that were in a team of about 15 as opposed to a team of about 35. And that where most murder teams were getting, you know, something like a new case to investigate every six or seven weeks, this team would sometimes get two or three in a night and were still trying to investigate it in that same detailed way, uh, which was completely unsustainable. You know, there there was no way that that could be staffed, there just weren't the resources to, to respond to each case like that. And what that meant was that the other premier line of inquiry, which was the DNA swabbing. So having a list of people whose description, background, location, associates and intelligence suggested they could be the perpetrator uh, and going around to those people on that list and asking them for their DNA so they could be eliminated. That's a tactic in, in my view that's one really of last resort. That is a tactic of desperation because it's very difficult to do that in all circumstances. It's only going to be as good as as the intelligence you used to draw the list up in the first Mm -hmm. place. Otherwise, your suspect's not going to be on that list. And if you then add into the mix on this one that the demographic of the people on that list meant that they were in the 70s and 80s young black men growing up in southeast London – but I think you know it's pretty pretty much agreed that their experience to date with the Metropolitan Police was probably not all that positive, and so there was a degree, or well, a large degree, of mistrust. And when they had these detectives appear on their doorstep saying, "Can we take your DNA, please?" They they were sort of saying, "Well, we don't trust you to deal with it properly. We, have we got to give it? No. Well, then we're not going to." And so. Mm-hmm. This mistrust meant there was a lot of wasted effort by these officers. It's dispiriting, you know, really demoralising for the officers that they're spending their whole day going around knocking on doors and everybody's sending them to get lost. They're not going to give them their DNA. But most of these refusals, when they refused, it was a real difficult thing for the, the senior investigating officer to decide what they did next.
0: In overall charge of the Minstead operation at the time was former MET Detective Chief Superintendent Hamish Campbell, a highly respected veteran detective. Colin already had a good track record in solving cases, having previously caught the serial killer and sex offender Levi Belfield. So he was drafted in by Hamish to lend his expertise and try to crack this case as well. After spending some time with the Minstead team, Colin made a number of recommendations to Hamish about what needed to change in order to bring Delroy Grant to
1: justice. The first thing was to say, look, we don't need, we can't continue to do this high-level, detailed forensic investigation of every single case. And actually, we don't need to because we've got DNA stored in the bank of old offences that are for crimes that are sufficient severity and seriousness that when we find this man, he's going to go away away into prison for a very long time. So all we needed to do was find him, then the DNA convicts him. So there's no need for us to try to get evidence to prove that he committed all these new offences. What we can do is just use them as the best opportunity we can to try to identify him. So there's a difference between finding information that will identify him to retaining and and, uh, retrieving all the evidence that would prove he committed that offence. And what that meant was that we could cast our net, if you like, more widely, but less deeply. So the way that the mismatch between resources and demand had been dealt with was to kind of distinguish some offences and say, oh, they're not minced; they're going back to the borough for investigation. So saying yeah, okay, it was an old person, it was overnight, but the phone wires weren't cut, so therefore it can't be Minstead man division to investigate. Well, we now know that some of those offences, of those many offences that were suggested by the division to Minstead, and Minstead then put back to the division, we now know that many of those were committed by Deroghue Grant. And so by going more widely, we could actually look at all these offences but just look and see if they helped us to identify who he was. And it meant that it shifted the focus away from hoping that he would make a mistake and leave a piece of evidence in one of these scenes to just using those to say as the intelligence opportunities to identify him. And that was kind of a halfway house. That was the the, the sort of first thing that I went back to Hamish with and and said, look, we need to do this. But the thinking behind it was, was that my feeling ultimately was that we were going to have to try and be proactive and get in front of him rather than keep responding to him. And that would entail us doing some sort of surveillance operation and we needed as much information to inform our sort of plotting of his offences and, and our crime pattern analysis. Yeah, we needed as much op- information on that as we could so that we could choose the area in which we were going to conduct that operation with the greatest sort of certainty or the greatest chance of success. And that meant having a full data set of all the offences that this man had probably committed, not just the ones that the Minstead team was, was was able to deal with because of its resourcing.
0: He made a, a critical blunder, didn't he, in, in late May 2009 at a burglary at home in, in Bromley where he helped himself to a drink.
1: Well, yeah, he did. Um, he did in, in, in the sense that it left his DNA there. But of course, you know, he, he knew he. he knew we didn't have his. We we knew he didn't have his DNA on record, so he was mm. a lot more relaxed about leaving DNA than he would have been about fingerprints because mm-hmm. he knew that we had his fingerprints from old offences he committed, you know, back in the '90s and '80s. But what that offence did, I mean, the interesting thing is that is an offence that was turned back and given back to the borough to investigate. So they report to us, we've had this burglary overnight, there's an 82-year-old woman lives here, 88-year-old woman lives here, and and her 62-year-old son, and there's nothing been stolen, and she wasn't interacted with, but we think it's a Minstead case. And Minstead, applying the criteria that was you know, enforced at the time, said, well, no, he don't, you know, we don't think our man strikes where there are two people in the house, he always interacts with the victim, nothing's been stolen, we don't think this is the case for us, it's it's back to you. But what had happened was because he'd taken this drink from the, the orange juice carton and the local police had seized that and had it examined, they retrieved a DNA profile from the, the mouth, or the spout on this orange juice carton, which showed that it was the same, you know, it wasn't missing, man, it was the same as the other crime scenes. And that was the example, you know, that was the perfect example that I needed to demonstrate what I thought was wrong with this screening process. This case would have been kicked back, not a minstead case, but we now know it definitely is because of the DNA. So how many more of those are there out there that we need to get in our system so that we can use them to inform us where we do go proactive in the end? I mean,
0: it was around this time that you started really targeting sort of CCTV cameras at ATMs. When you aware that he was withdrawing yeah. money from the the proceeds of, uh, or, or no, from, from from debit cards, I presume, of those who, yeah, who, yeah. who he burgled? Well,
1: talk, talk us through that, please, uh, Colin. Well, that's that's. I mean, that's the interesting thing that that um, because he his offending was over such a long period of time, he had to change his uh, methods to react to changes in society, really. And one of those was with the phones, where, whereby he'd start off by cutting phone lines. But then as more people had um, either cordless handsets or then mobile phones, rather than cutting wires, he would take the handsets and put them on top of the kitchen cupboards or somewhere high so that the, the victim couldn't get to them. And another sort of similar change that he had to make was with the the debit cards, because rather than pensions being paid at the post office in cash, they came straight into people's bank accounts and they used um, debit cards to to withdraw money from ATMs. So he started taking debit cards from his victims and asking them for the PIN number. And most of them gave them to him, gave the numbers to him. They were just so frightened and felt so controlled. One or two one or two didn't. He would go and try and use some ATMs. And he, he seemed to have favourite ATMs, if you like. You know, we could tell from where the cards had been used. So we before I got there, the the, the cameras had been installed looking at some of these ATMs. And uh, yeah, we saw him go and we draw money, but he kept his hood up, he kept a scarf around his face. It didn't really lead us anywhere. And we then went to as' kind of a halfway house measure almost in October two thousand and nine, while I was getting the resources in line and and the planning done for the, for the sort of big surveillance operation. We just put a car of two or three officers sitting watching the ATM overnight because it was the one he seemed to use. More frequently than any other. And I mean, in fact, it, it was it was not too far from, from his home. And, you know, we looked at the times that other attempts had been made, and we looked at the times it got light and various other things, and the the surveillance would go on until half past five in the morning. The on this particular night the, the surveillance car left at five thirty-six AM. Of course I knew what time they'd left because they were on the CCTV. Mm-hmm. And eight minutes later at five forty-four Along comes what we now know to be Delroy Grant to withdraw some money from from the uh, from the ATM. We missed him by eight minutes, and that's the sort of time, the sort of thing that happens when you start to beat yourself up and think, you know, "Oh, why didn't I say let's do till six o'clock?" And you know, and, and if I'd done that, then then he could have come at eight minutes past six, couldn't he? You know, it, it's um, it's not an exact science, but you do when you have such a, a near miss, it does sort of shake you a bit.
0: While this was a near-miss for Colin and his team, there was an opportunity to catch Delroy Grant years earlier. But owing to a policing error and mix-up, he was left undetected for a long time. Colin explains.
1: It was a, a young trainee detective doing, making an assumption, which was actually a reasonable assumption, and the way that you sort of do make further inquiries and, and how you progress investigations... But what she failed to do was then to to check the assumption and to stand it up and make sure that it was right. And because she didn't do that, you know, it, it's something that's very it's very difficult to explain. It was difficult to explain in ninety seconds in in in, in the drama. But even with the, the the time I had, you know, I had to rewrite this part of the book about six times and and run it past people who weren't police officers to try and see if I'd explained it and so they could understand what had happened. But essentially, you've got two men with the same name, Delroy Grant. They've both been arrested in the past, one of them a long time in the past, and one of them quite recently. One of them had an address in Leicester, and one had an address in London. So the officer decided or assumed the one in London was the one to start with. That's the most likely one who's responsible for a London offence. And it was an offence of burglary, but it wasn't a minsted burglary that minstead had taken. It was one of these ones that had been left with the division and somehow she never actually checked that assumption and never actually made sure that the delroy grant who was the registered keeper of the car that had been involved in this burglary was the one that lived in london because in fact it was the one who lived in leicester although he didn't live in leicester anymore he had lived in leicester and it was our one but by confusing the two the london delroy grant who'd been arrested recently had given his dna and of course, that DNA wasn't a match for the Minstead DNA because it was a different man. But somehow, our Delroy Grant, who was a registered keeper of the car, who lived in, now in London, but used to live in Leicester, was put onto the database, but he was given the crime file of the other DNA of the other Delroy Grant. And that said, we had his DNA and it didn't match. So he was therefore eliminated forever on the minister database. It actually means the swabbing would never have worked because he would never be on the list to be swabbed. Because the system told us, no, we've already got his DNA and it doesn't match. And, and what's worse is that when, you know, in 2001, somebody phoned up and suggested Delroy Grant as a possible suspect, the real Delroy Grant, our Delroy Grant, the one who did it, it was of no use. Because the first thing the officers do is they go to the computer and say, oh, do we know anything about Delroy Grant? What can you use? Oh yeah, he's on here. Eliminated by DNA, can't be him. Oh well, never mind. Put that one away. The potential for this sort of thing happening again in other cases is, is at the moment, with the, the workloads that these poor detectives have on, on particularly on divisions, is it's still there. You know, um, and, and as I said, it's it's all a human process done by human beings, and there are going to be there are going to be slip-ups. It's just sometimes those mm-hmm. slip-ups have the just the most horrible consequences.
0: The Night Stalker was suspected of committing dozens of offences, but the true extent of his reign of terror may never be known. The majority of his victims were the elderly, who lived at home alone. Colin recalls two of those victims' stories.
1: The two things that that will stay with me from forever, one was this woman we we called Ellen in the drama, or in the book, I think we called Nancy in the drama, confusingly. But, you know, I didn't name any of the victims, I wouldn't do that, I didn't want to do that, so I gave them all different names, but there's this woman, and she's 93 years old, and she's she's not told the officers she's been with already um, anything other than she was burgled, and I'm introduced to her, this is the boss, Mr Sutton, and... uh she said, oh, hello, Mr. Sutton, very well-spoken lady. And I said, oh, do call me Colin. And she, she extended her hand as if to shake hands, and I took hold of it, and then she brought the other hand on. And she, she kind of pulled me down towards her. She's sitting in a chair, and I let her do that. You know, obviously, she's a very frail old lady. And she just whispered in my ear, he interfered with me, you know. And the courage, the dignity with which she said it, that was when I just wanted to cry, I wanted to hug her, I wanted to punch the man who'd done this to her. And then I sort of professionalism kicks back in again, and you say, oh "God, do we, do I really need to send this lady to the suite to be examined to see if she's been raped? Is that not just going to heap more indignity and more pain and on her? And in the end, I, I made the decision: no, we're not going to. We'll just try and keep her, keep her going, uh, without putting her through that. And and uh, she, I mean, she lived for about six weeks. She stopped eating basically." I've said before, he killed her just as surely as if he'd have shot her or strangled her, but it just took a little bit more time. So that was one. And, and, and the, other, the other victim, in fact, there were two victims that said this. When when we'd arrested him, the family liaison officer, who was just the most amazing, sympathetic human being, she was, she was ringing round the victims that were still alive and their families to tell them the good news. And two of his victims, who were still alive then, said... Oh, that's really good. I can go back to sleeping at night now. And it turned out that both these old women in the in twilight the of their life, since he'd been there, had been staying up all night in case he came back and sleeping during the daytime. How do you do that to somebody who's 80 years old, you know?
0: There were scores more, just like that, of people who were terrorised by Delroy Grant. Colin was off duty at the time that Grant was finally caught. But here's how the operation unfolded that led to the Night Stalker's arrest.
1: We finally got the go-ahead for this this surveillance operation, so I had 70 officers um, plotted up in houses, some in the church spire and various buildings around Shirley area. And the idea being that, you know, this is a residential area where after about 11 o'clock midnight, nothing moved really. One or two dog walkers and it was cats and foxes and that's all it was. So the thought was that he would probably stand out, you know, as long as we made sure that we were completely unseen and nobody knew we were there, then, then we'd have a chance that he would come and do it in front of us. And he did, on the very first night of the surveillance, he, he committed three offences literally just outside our area. He had to have driven through the area to get to the third one, so that enabled us to go to some CCTV, and from that we knew what kind of car he drove and what colour it was, and so that sort of informed us as well. And on the second night of surveillance, he committed another offence, but up in Lambeth. It was the furthest north and the furthest west that he ever offended. And that was the one where the woman heard him breaking in and got on 999 on her mobile phone and was still speaking to the operator when Grant ran into her bedroom. He snatched the phone from her, swore at her and ran off. And a police car responding to her call was 20 seconds behind him and he dived off down an alley an officer left the car and chased after him and there was this epic foot chase for over two miles um at the at the end of which the officer just missed him and he he just went over a wall into a car park of a a sort of mega store type place and was just nowhere to be seen and he was lost and and the the worry then was that um you know, it would frighten him so much he'd stop offending at all and, and our surveillance would all be to no use. And and uh, that was the second night and it went on for another 12, 13, 14 nights, nothing happening. And all through this time, I'm there at night running the, the surveillance operation in the control room, but I've also got my sort of day job to do back at lewisham so I'm, I'm doing sort of double shifts effectively and you know getting really short on sleep to be honest mm-hmm. uh and and nathan my di was was on a course that i didn't want to stop him going on but when he finished the course on the friday he came back and said look you know you've you've had such a rough time over the last two and a half weeks i'll um i'll take the weekend for you and the very first night that i had off was the night that we caught him
0: so how did it unravel that night albeit in your absence
1: colin <laughs> Yeah, I was at home watching England lose to Brazil, I think, and then went to bed. And unbeknown to me, one of the detective sergeants who'd been on the operation every night went into his observation post with a colleague and they saw that a grey Vauxhall Zafira, just of the sort that we knew was was the car driven by, by our suspect, was parked close to them and it hadn't been there for the previous two weeks. And so, you know, it it sort of stood out to them. So they made all the other um, static observation points aware. And then sometime after midnight, they saw this black man come running down, jogging down the road, got into it and he drove off. And the plan very much was not to stop him quickly because what I didn't want to happen was if we kept stopping people within our area of observation, and they were the wrong man, they weren't the person we needed and wanted to stop, then word would get out that something was happening in that area and there were lots of police there because people kept getting stopped. So the idea was to bring in this mobile surveillance team which did come in and, and they followed him and followed him and followed him until he was two or three miles away. And that's when they stopped him, so he wouldn't know then that he'd been followed all that way and, and he'd been stopped because of what went on there. And that's what they did, and they, they stopped him, and he, he gave us a sort of slightly false name at first, but that wasn't really much good because uh, he had some credit cards with him in his own name, so, so that's sort, of, sort of seen through quite quickly. Meanwhile, officers back at the observation had gone and found a bungalow where a burglary had been attempted and a pane of glass had been removed in a house close by to or well, within our, our observation zone. Um, and they spoke to the occupier there and she was uh, sadly like m- many of our, our victims in this, she, she wasn't in the best of health mentally because of dementia and, and she sort of didn't understand what was going on didn't understand that she'd been the victim of a burglary or an attempted burglary but that was enough to kind of prove to the officers or, or to make it very suspicious that uh, they'd seen this man running from somewhere where a pain glass had been removed he'd got into a car of the sort that we were looking for And he fitted the description. So he was arrested. And it was then when the car was looked into, there was clothing found in there, a distinctive cagoule and a distinctive sort of sweatshirt top, both of which had been worn by our suspect on the CCTV at the ATMs. Mm -hmm. There was a torch. He was wearing sort of three different pairs of trousers. And there were all sorts of things that were very suspicious. And uh, he was arrested, taken into Lewisham. And one of the first things then that happened was was he gave a DNA sample, and that was rushed up to the lab, and then off to Birmingham to the database. And within you know less than less than 12 hours, we'd we'd got the confirmation that he was uh, he was the Night Stalker. I just got straight up, and went straight inside, so got there by about half two in the morning, I think. I was introduced to Delroy Grant, and he was he was very respectful. He bowed his head, shook my hand, you know, hello, sir. And that's where I made this sort of corny joke about cricket because he was wearing all white because his clothes had been taken from him and he's wearing all these white jogging bottoms and white sweatshirt. And I said, what are you doing then, batting or bowling? And he kind of seized upon me. Oh, are you into cricket? I said, yeah, I am, yeah. And, and it was just an icebreaker, you know. It was just you know, policing's about people and, and, and it's about starting relationships with people and talking to people, even mm. if they're people like Delroy Grant. You know, you still have to talk to them.
0: He was just a sex monster uh, who, you know, yeah. some of those victims and those victim impact statements which were given, I mean, it was just harrowing yeah. in the extreme. You know, yeah. uh, people who aren't police officers might wonder how do you separate your emotions from the professional side of your job when you're dealing with, you know, mm. an, frankly, an utter low life?
1: How do you do that? I think it's because I and, and most, if not all, police officers have a bit of a dual persona as well you know there's for me very much there was work Colin and home Colin. you know and, and work Colin, kicked in and I thought I, it's no good standing there and yelling at this bloke and telling him what a monster he is and how disgusting he is and what you think of him because we need to have him cooperate with us over the next few hours so that we can make sure that we do our job properly and so part of that is striking up a conversation about anything but the thing with Delvoy Grant is of course that lots of people who knew him friends that we spoke to you know, said to us, You must have the wrong man. No, it can't be. It can't be Delroy. He's he's the doting carer for his for his badly disabled wife. He's the mainstay of the cricket team. He's the the guy in the cul-de-sac who does the music and the barbecue when we have street parties. He's he's life and soul of the party, good old boy Delroy. You must have the wrong man. And actually he had this sort of dual personality in some ways. And when I started talking to him about cricket and he came back to me and then yeah we ended up it wasn't just a couple of phrases. We had a chat for five minutes about the England squad going to South Africa on tour and whether they needed another bowler should have gone and the kind of conversation you'd have had with somebody in a pub or after Mm. a cricket match you know so he was getting my kind of professional persona saying you've got to talk to this man and be nice to him he's giving me back the external appearance Mm. that he gave to all his friends and family I wasn't standing there talking to Delra Grant, the gerontophile burglar rapist I was talking to Delo Grant, the cricketer, doting husband, DJ, and barbecuist. You know, it, it was really, really bizarre set of circumstances. And, and, and then it kind of came to me that this man I'm talking to had just given his DNA swab. He'd just had that, that huge cotton bud drawn across the inside of his cheek and it had gone into a bag. And that was going to send him to prison, probably until he was a very, very old man. And yet we're standing there talking like two guys at the bar, you
0: yeah? know? bizarre. I mean, he claimed that, uh, that uh, someone must be someone else in his family who had yes. done it. I mean, that was, uh, I mean, that to uh, he might have been chatty no. about cricket, but that's uh, that's the sort of like the psychopathic side
1: of him uh, coming through, one uh, might say. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, that was it. But he, even that he kind of gave to us in a really respectful way, you know, he was just saying, I, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, officer, but, I do understand that DNA can be very similar between fathers and sons, and I, I think you need to go and see my son because I think he he might have done this. Doesn't come much lower, really, does it? Doing all that sort of thing and then trying to pin it on your son.
0: You spoke about Grant being uh, quite accommodating of you, quite chatty, but, but that didn't extend to him pleading guilty.
1: No, it didn't, and, and not only that, and he he also came up with a what I refer to as a comedy defence almost. I mean, his his defence was unbelievable. It, it was. Uh, basically he said that his first wife, around about the time when they were splitting up in 1979, that his first wife had started to gather and store and retain semen and saliva, which she then gave to a doctor friend who kept it frozen in a, a hospital for her, until the 90s when she then got it out, defrosted it and gave it to people who went around squirting it on old ladies' bedding and, and bodies. Which was remarkable, really, in the sense that not only is it you know just preposterous anyway, but of course, 1979, when she started this, DNA as an identification mm. tool wasn't a thing, hadn't been invented, hadn't been sort of thought of.
0: In March 2011, at the age of 52, Delroy Grant was found guilty at Woolwich Crown Court. He was given four life sentences and an order to serve a minimum of 27 years in prison. You've been listening to me, Stephen Wright, in conversation with former DCI Colin Sutton, explaining his role in catching the Night Stalker, a beyond reasonable doubt podcast for MailPlus. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider telling your friends about it. And if you'd like more on this and other stories, you can visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces, and more, including previous Beyond Reasonable Doubt episodes.